Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is musician and jazz educator Rob Dixon. Rob Dixon is a graduate of Hampton University and also attended the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music as a graduate student. He moved to New York City in the late 1990s, where he worked with legendary artists such as the Count Basie Big Band, Tony Bennett, Slide Hampton, Dakota Staten, the Illinois Jaquette Big Band, Rufus Reed, Jonah Jones, and Bill Lee, who is the composer and father of Spike Lee, Weldon Irving, and producer Ali Shahid Muhammad, DJ from A Tribe Called Quest. After moving to Indianapolis in 2003, Dixon has continued to work with renowned artists such as pianist Steve Ali, drummer Steve Houghton, the Buscelli Wallarab Jazz Orchestra, the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra, drummer Mike Clark, the Headhunters, and guitarist Dave Stryker and Charlie Hunter. He's also an adjunct professor at IUPUI and Earlham College and is the artistic director for Indie Jazz Fest. He mentors the Jazz Futures, an Indianapolis Jazz Foundation-sponsored ensemble comprised of student musicians from various high schools throughout the metropolitan area of Indianapolis. Rob Dixon, thanks so much for joining us today on Profiles. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I think that is the most accurate bio that anyone's ever said about me. Well, we're Excellent. off to a good start yes. then. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Obviously, there's a lot that had to be left out. That's just an introduction. And I wanted to ask where you grew up and went to school before you went to Hampton and Indiana University. I was actually born in Baltimore, Maryland, and was there until I was about 10 years old, and then we moved to Atlanta. So I kind of most of my experiences of growing up are probably Atlanta because I was in middle school then high school. And that's where I actually really got into music and really serious about music and had all my musical, first musical experiences that happened in Atlanta. So, What were some of those musical experiences? You know, I was actually able to meet some great music teachers that had a great influence on me, my band director at high school, Mr. James Moody, and then he pointed me out to a private instructor by the name of Charles Bradley. He kind of was involved with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra when they first got started, and he was a phenomenal clarinetist, and he played alto saxophone like Cannibal Adderley. So he was just kind of a guru in Atlanta, and you had to get on a waiting list to be one of his students. Wow. So then I became one of his students and took lessons for a while, and then he was the kind of thing, like, if you didn't show up prepared, then you he'd send you back home. <laughs> and then you feel, and then he wouldn't even charge you. He says, "Go home. You're wasting my time. You're wasting your time." So, but he pointed me in the right direction. I remember taking a big band chart to him that we were playing in jazz band. I think it was a Spiral Gyro chart, and I was like, "Man, the guy on the record sounds amazing." And then he looked at the changes and started improvising. I was like, "Man, he sounds better than the guy on the record. How is that possible? He's never heard this song." And then he was like, "Man, you need to listen to this record." He told me to go get something else by Cannibal Adderley. And Kind of Blue, that got me started with Miles Davis and listening to those records, you know, it really opened my eyes to jazz. And then I said, man, this is something I might want to pursue. This is awesome. Wow, it's, it's really interesting because you yourself now are such a teacher and a mentor, and it sounds like teachers and mentors played a crucial role in your early development. Yes, absolutely. Being in that environment in school where we would have maybe a music group, I remember being very young and having a, a group of musicians come to our school, and I just was fixated on the saxophone that was in the band, and 
the interplay between all the musicians and thought it was the best thing in the world. I think then I didn't know that I was going to do it, but I was just so attracted to what they were doing on stage. It's like, I want to be a part of that, whatever it is. It seemed exciting to you. Yeah, yeah. just very interesting because it was, and I explained it to young people, the feelings that I had. I was like, you know, music can convey a lot of emotions and colors, but there were some emotions that jazz, when I was listening to jazz, it was like very sophisticated nuanced emotions that I couldn't even articulate at the time. I was like, man, I don't know what that sound makes me feel like, but it's very cool, you know, between, you know, this color and this color. That aspect of it always intrigued me as well. Were there people in your family who had been musicians or played music at all? Was it in your home at all? Did anybody in your family perform music in any context? No. So you were kind of the first. I was the first. You know, my parents were big supporters of the art, and they loved listening to music, and they had a great music collection. My dad was a big fan of Coltrane. I have memories of him playing some Coltrane, as well as some other artists. He was very much into, like, the Motown, R&B, Donny Hathaway, you know, listening to a lot of that music. Nobody in my family, as far back as I can go in my family tree, that I know played music. So it was kind of like, where did this come from? But my sister really wanted to play piano, and she's older than me, my older sister. And so my folks bought a piano, and she never touched the thing. And so I gravitated <laughs> toward things immediately. Oh, so, you know what I mean? So that was where I really started. I was, like, always at the piano just trying to work things out. And then I wanted to play drums in school. And then they was like, we have too many drummers. Pick another instrument. And it was like, I guess saxophone, you know. And then they got me a saxophone and just listen to the radio and try to play what was on the radio and go back to the piano and then go back and forth. And I just had such a strong interest that my band director, from a very early age, said, you need to get them into some private lessons. That'll really help. And so I think that really just snowballed my interest. So what else were you listening to when you were growing up that you enjoyed, whether it was on the radio or records or things that your friends were into? At the time, I was listening to jazz radio stations, and they would play a lot of contemporary artists at the time, like maybe Grover Washington and David Sanborn. And then, you know, of course, like groups like Ira Jaren and... Because this was the 80s, yeah, right? Yeah, so the late was, 70s going into the 80s. Right, right. There, there was a lot of that being played on so, the So, and, and then it was, you know, Wynton Marcellus hit the scene, and hearing somebody so young and so talented talk about this music so intelligently and talk about the history really got me intrigued about this youth movement in jazz, you know, because I think he spurred this big youth movement, getting young people interested in playing the music because he was such a phenomenal trumpeter. That actually piqued my interest in listening to some older music. And he was the one that turned me on to R. Blake and the Jazz Messengers. I had never heard of R. Blake and the Jazz Messengers until Wynton Marcellus. And I know that's pretty sad as a jazz musician. But, you know, when that band with uh, Bobby Watson and Billy Pierce and James Williams and the album of the year... That was my first uh, Art Blakey and uh, Jazz Messengers. Well, he kind of helped revive the Jazz Messengers. Yeah. I mean, they were still going throughout the 70s, but I mean, I think when Winton joined them, he... Yeah, he bolstered, you know, I came to learn that Sony Records, when Winton came on the scene, they wanted to bring in a pop star, a publicist for him instead of a regular jazz publicist. So I think um, Bruce Springsteen's publicist was Winton Marcellus's Publicist, which actually now that guy is Seth Cohen. He's like the guru jazz publicist in New York. 
but he was Bruce Springsteen's publicist forever. So, and it really worked because all of a sudden you're not in down just downbeat. Went and was in like People magazine and Rolling Stone and Time and yeah, you know, I think so. he was one of the last artists to make the cover of Time magazine. One right. of the last jazz artists to make right. the cover exactly. of Time magazine. I'm not sure if anybody has since Wenton, but oh, right. Before you came to IU, you went to Hampton. Right, right. Hampton yeah. University. I was in school there, and there was another trumpet player, uh, Mr. Derek Gardner, who was also went to IU, and he was at Hampton. He left Hampton, came here, and then he told me about the program, and he's like, you got to come to Indiana University. David Baker is just the master. He's the guru. And then I was like, how can I get in? He was like, well, you got to audition. We got to do this. He tells me all the things that I have to do. And I said, well, I'm very interested. So he said, well, maybe I can get a phone call with David and you can talk to him. And so I sent him some of my music, like some of a recording. And then David called me. He's like, man, yeah, we'd love to have you. He's like, you know, you sound great, but you got, you know, there's a lot of hard work in front of you. He didn't mince words and he didn't say, oh, you sound fantastic. He was like, no, you sound good, but, you know, you got a lot of work to do. So, yeah, we'd love to have you. And that was starting the process of me getting here. You had studied music at Hampton and graduated from Hampton. Right. And I started out not as a music major. I started out as a biology major and I switched over. Wow. So even though you'd had this love and passion for music, were you kind of hedging your bets a little bit and thinking like, well, maybe I should. I mean, I know this happens a lot with musicians where they feel like they need to have a potential fallback. I think so. You know, I love music. I also was like a I'm a big fan of my father, who's a physicist. And so I kind of wanted to do something like that he would, you know, I mean, I was almost maybe, maybe I'll go in that direction. You know, when I went to Hampton, he had students that were like teaching there. So he was like, there was a lot of people in the science department that had reverence for him. So I said, well, I'll take a math class. I'll take a calculus class. And I said, well, I'm pretty good at math. So I got to my freshman year and I remember saying, well, you know, I don't really need to go to class. I'm good. I can always, like, you know, I'm pretty good at test. <laughs> I, I thought, and then I remember the first day of my calculus class when I went in and we took the test, and I was like, there are no numbers on this test. Where are the numbers? And everybody starts laughing. It's like, you know, it's like, I was like, oh, okay, well, this is a different kind of math. <laughs> yeah, so then I was like, okay, well, maybe I don't need to do this. I don't need to be a pre-med student. The interest wasn't there. I just was like, well, my dad's really into it. So, you know, I pursued music then. And then when Derek told me about this program here, and he said, this is like one of the best programs in the country. You need to you need to be here. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do everything I need to do to get to. And it was a very great experience because I got to meet musicians here that were just like world-class players. I thought, you know, when I first came, there were freshmen and sophomores that were playing on a professional level. They could go out with anybody the next day. I think IU's always attracted musicians like that. Not only did they have great instructors, I just think they attract so many gifted students that it sets the bar really high. And that's what it did for me. It was like, okay, the bar was set a lot higher than it had ever been set for me. I spent most of my time, my first year and a half here, just in the practice room trying to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Are your parents still alive? My dad is still alive. So how does yeah. he, uh, is he happy with how the path that you took instead of the biology path? I think so because they haven't seen me perform before until last year. All my professional career never seen me. You know. My older sister and my dad got to see me 
in different cities. I played in Philadelphia with Charlie Hunter last year. We played at the World Cafe, and that was the first time my dad. And it was cool because it was a sold-out show, so he saw me there. And then, and then we did a bunch of cities and then played in Atlanta. It was two sold-out shows in Atlanta. And I think my sister, they thought it was going to be like a dinner music thing. They were like, oh, we want to get tickets like the day of the show. And I'm like, they've been sold out for like weeks. <laughs> and, you know, she wanted like six tickets for her and her friends. And I was like, I can get two. You know, it's like, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> she didn't know what was going on. She thought it was going to be like she was eating dinner and we were going to be in the background. Right, she right. Didn't know it was like a yeah. concert. I was like, no, nah, this is, you know, this guy is pretty famous it's not like you know sometimes people get in their minds you know oh we'll go see some jazz or you know it's atmosphere or ambient music i thought maybe she had that in mind and she's like oh no this is a bona fide concert well you already talked a little bit about but i want to ask you a little bit more about david baker who sounds like he kind of played a musical paternal role in your life to some extent uh, oh, when you came to study them at IU, and how did that impact you? I've talked to so many people that were really deeply influenced by the time they spent working with David. I was curious what your experiences were like. Being around David, like he would say things that, a few things that he said just would set off a light bulb in my head, you know, like, oh, that's it. And I would always have this series of eureka moments. And he did that for so many people. He really taught me how to listen to the music and actually kind of deconstruct what was happening. As far as jazz vocabulary, he showed me the alphabet, you know, how bebop phrasing and leading tones work and the bebop improvisational device, which is kind of the cornerstone of most jazz improvisation and modern music today. So he set me in the right path, and I was like, okay, this is the path I have to go in. And start listening to records, transcribing, and then knew what to listen for because of his teaching. Just taking that improv class, it's like just that one class I took, I was like, okay, I, I can figure things out now. He was great about that. So that was definitely a profound change in my musical life. What do you think made him so effective as a jazz educator? You know, I think just because he was a great professional musician before he was an educator, I don't know if he had worked out the methodology, but he's so articulate and expressive and could make the most complicated and nuanced subject matter seem very clear and understandable. And he had the knack for doing that, you know. It's amazing looking back on it because sometimes when I'm talking to students, I'm thinking like, man, I'm being so clear and they're just got the most puzzled look on their face. And I'm like, man, how can I be more clear? <laughs> and they're looking like, it's just, we're not connecting. But David always just had that connection where he could make the most complicated subject matter seem very elementary and simple. So, Do you have a favorite eureka moment that you remember working with David? You know, when he was showing me how to navigate on two, five, one chords and enclosures. You know, I'd learned about enclosures and he talked about that. And I went and listened to all these records and I'm like, oh, there's one there, there's one there, there's one there. And then I just got me on this terror of transcribing music. And and then he's like, you know, you don't have to transcribe complete solos. Just transcribe parts, you know? And I was like, man, you know, because I always felt like, oh, yeah, you have to transcribe. And that is such a daunting task is transcribe solos. 
And then he's like, no, I just transcribed 16 bars on the parts you like. And I was like, I could do that? You know what I, mean? like, I got permission to do that. I was like, oh, awesome. So then it was like, oh, man, I would transcribe like pieces of Jerry Bergonzi, pieces of Coltrane, pieces of Joe Henderson, pieces of Sonny Rollins. You know, I didn't have to do the whole thing. And it was like, man, okay, I really like these 32 bars of this solo. So I'm going to transcribe that. So kind of gave you permission, a, a tool almost to really yeah. expand the amount of work you could do. Or, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. just really, you know, pick and choose what you really like. And, you know, it wasn't like this thing where you're not doing it correctly. It's like there's many paths to learning how to improvise. So that was, and, you know, just creating that environment of having so many great musicians in the program was also a great growing experience for me. Just joining us, I'm David Brent Johnson, and our guest on Profiles today is musician and jazz educator Rob Dixon. Rob, after you studied with David Baker here at IU, you moved to New York City in the late 1990s. Is that right? Right. Had a small stint in Indianapolis after Bloomington, maybe about a year and a half or so, a couple of years, and then moved to New York and moved to Brooklyn. And that was great. I guess that was my other education after IU. It was like another stepping stone, like, oh, okay. Because you're meeting, like, the best musicians from around the world. They all are descending on New York City. So the bar is super high. (laughs) It's like, okay. (laughs) So that's why you moved from Indianapolis to Brooklyn? You kind of wanted to go to the ultimate major league of music? You know, I did, and I was doing well in Indianapolis. And I remember being in Indianapolis for about a year and a half or maybe a year the J.J. Johnson concert or something. It was something where I saw David, and we actually sat and talked, David Baker, and he said, you know, he goes, don't stick around too long. You need to move to New York. And I was like, man, I do need to move to New York. So, you know, that really gave me some motivation to say, well, I need to move out there. And uh, there was a lot of my friends out there at the time or getting ready to move there, and then I felt really good because there was a good IU contingency of musicians that lived out there that went to IU. And it seemed like if you moved out there, they would look saying, well, I can get you on this gig. You know, oh, yeah, th- you know, there's a big band that plays on this night. I'll see if we can get you on. And, and there was a lot of that. It was a lot of the IU jazz club helping each other out. And matter of fact, when musicians moved to New York that I knew that were from IU, I went way out of my way to try to get them work. I always say, you can sub on my gig. I'm going to give you this, you know. It's kind of like a fraternity, isn't uh, it? Absolutely. Uh, jazz I, musicians. I, exa- exactly. <laughs> I was, that helped me out a lot to know that there was a, a network of musicians. It's almost kind of a safety net. It's like, well, there might be something there. And you know, I didn't work, and I moved there, and I went to jam sessions every night. I think I, the first eight months of my life, I existed in Smalls, and there was a place called St. Mark's Bar at the time, and Visiones, and 
Cleopatra's Needle um, came a little bit later, but I was just at a jam session like every single night. But that's where actually I met most of my friends that I would hang out with in New York. That was a great experience because just being on that scene, you got to see who's what, and I actually ended up getting a regular gig of my own. Is this during this time that you also played with a lot of the big name, both legacy and working big bands, it sounds like, uh, Count Basie and Illinois Jaquette and Slide Hampton. What was it like working with some of those ensembles? That was fantastic. You know, the, the Count Basie thing happened just before I moved to New York, and that was because Derek was on the Basie band with Frank Foster at the time. And they were on the road with Tony Bennett and his trio, and it was my first introduction to like professional uh, wow. gigging yeah. yeah so it was kind of like wow this is like <laughs> baptism by fire yeah for sure yeah. and then i did maybe a few months touring with them and then i moved to new york and when i was there after about six or eight months tim williams who was a trombone player with art blake and the jazz messengers in the mid 80s he's from kansas city but he knew a lot of people in the business, and I got to know him pretty well. He lived in Brooklyn. I was helping him move one time, and he's like, hey, man, Illinois is looking for a tenor player. I told him about you. So I was like, <laughs> oh, cool. Wow. And it was Monday, and they were flying to Europe Friday, and they needed a tenor player. <laughs> so I think I went over his house Tuesday, and Illinois got on the drums and had me read the second tenor chair book why he played the drums. Illinois Jaquette, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah and he yeah. was not a good drummer. He's a, <laughs> he was a world-class saxophonist, legendary, but his drumming, and I saw us having to read the secretary book where he's playing, sitting there playing the drums. It goes, one, two, and I'm like, oh, man. I... <laughs> that must have been so weird, you know, because Illinois Jaquette is, you know, he's first famous for the flying home solo in right. the 40s, and was very well known in the 40s and 50s, partly oh, because yeah. of that, and certainly in the jazz world is this, you know, landmark figure. And for you to be there, but thinking like, wow, he's Illinois Jaquette, but he's a crappy drummer. Oh, yeah, he, and we're in his basement, and he's counting off these tunes, and I'm like, uh, yeah, well, if you had solid tempo, I wanted to say that. I could actually read it a little bit better, but... But it actually went okay, the audition. It went didn't go great, but, you know, um, so I got in the band, and, like, uh, I didn't have a passport. So I think Tuesday, Wednesday, I took a train to Hartford, Connecticut, and they had purchased a plane ticket for me, so I took a copy of the purchase plane ticket to get a passport. And I actually got a passport in a day. I think you... I don't know if you can still do it, but that's I, got, got, I was going to say, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I got a passport one day, and then I was on a plane, and I think Thursday evening we were flying to Amsterdam. That was the first city I played, and we played in Germany, and that was that was definitely an experience. My first tour with Illinois was definitely a life-learning experience because we played in a big orchestra hall, and I can't remember the name of the theater in Amsterdam, but we played One O'Clock Jump. And he says, do you know this tune? He's like, you want solo? He's like, gave me a solo. This is my first gig on the first tour. I'm like, all excited. I'm like, yes, I'm going to tear it up. I was, And the piano player's playing, and I'm like, okay, it's an F blues. And then I didn't realize it went to the key of D flat and the tenor solo. <laughs> so I stood up and started playing an F, like in front of about 2,500 people. And I'm playing an F, and I'm like, oh, it's a different key. So I'm like searching <laughs> for like two courses. Like, what key am 
<laughs> I don't think anybody talked to me in the band for like a week on the tour. They just like completely vibe me. But it was actually really good because it was like, man, I'm just going to practice harder. And then the next time he let me solo, I solo on a blues and I just knocked it out of the park because I had just been shedding. Because I was like, yeah, I got one shot and I just kind of like fell on my face. And then it's like, oh. And then months later, I get another solo. It was good because it, around that time, I was doing a gig in the village, a place called the Village Lantern, maybe about a year into playing with Illinois Jaquette. In New York, I was doing a regular gig at a place in the village, and Jonah Jones happened to live right down the street, and he would come in the bar and really be into the music. And I developed this great friendship with Jonah, and then he got on the phone with Illinois, and he's like, hey, man. Man, this is a tenor player, Rob Dixon. You heard him, and Owen's like, "He's with me." You know, <laughs> I taught him everything. I'm like, "What? No, you didn't teach me everything." But it was because of Jonah that Illinois started giving me more solos. He was like, "Oh, Jonah's like, man, you gotta hear him." And you know, I would never play in the band because I'm playing tenor saxophone in a tenor saxophonist band. You and know. Jonah Jones, who was a trumpeter who had played with Cab Calloway's big band, right? In the 30s and 40s. I Cab Calloway, yeah. And then had become a very popular leader on his own. Absolutely. Uh, recording for Capitol in the 50s. I mean, he was somebody whose records made it, I think, in a lot of households that weren't necessarily big yeah, he was, jazz households. So he was a pretty big deal. He was a time, pop yeah. star, basically, yeah, yeah. because outside of, you know, he was in New York and he was with Fletcher Henderson band. He left Fletcher Henderson's band to go out with Cab Calloway. And then then from there, he was on a TV show with Fred Astaire, the famous recording of the Rat Pack in front of the Vegas, the Sands. Yeah. You know, um, uh, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis and everyone. It's like Frank Sinatra featuring the Jonah Jones Quartet. If you look at that photo, that's the bill on the back. So, you know. <laughs> so now you're in New York City and Jonah Jones is trying to steal you away from Illinois Jaquette. Oh, he's just, <laughs> well, you know, he wouldn't, at that time, Jonah was like around 90 years old, so he didn't play, but he would get offers all the time. Like Blue Note wanted him to do two weeks, and then he would always come in, he would bring people to my gig. You know, I think he may have brought people from the Ted Curlin Agency and Joel Chris and people from the Kennedy Center and the Smithsonian. That would, and they would told me, do you know how important Jonah Jones is? And I was like, of course I know. I know him. <laughs> He's a friend of mine. <laughs> that was a great experience, too, because there was a filmmaker at the time at NYU. And she, as her graduate thesis, she did a film on Jonah Jones, which actually got released and got distributed. So there's a film by him called Jonah and the Whale, which you can find it on the internet, but tells his life story, which was great. And I'm in the documentary, so. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so yeah, so you were in New York City kind of at the very end of that generation of musicians really still being around. It sounds yeah. like, you know, the musicians who really came of age in the 40s and early 50s, they were right. they were still around and performing or at least hanging out in the late 90s. And that must have been really exciting to be able to form connections with that part of the jazz past. It was very fascinating for me because I'd taken a couple of jazz history classes, but hearing it firsthand out of Illinois Jaquette's mouth or Jonah Jones and listening to them tell stories, you're like, man, okay, they're right in it and they're telling you these stories. So you're getting like, you know, you feel like, man, okay, I'm getting it firsthand. Yeah, of course, I wasn't a part of that experience, but hearing it from them and developing close friendships with them, you really get to have more insight to the history of the music. 
you ended up moving back to Indianapolis in 2003, and why did you make that decision? There was a time when I was working with Illinois Jaquette, and then I started working a lot in New York. At one point, I wanted to work just exclusively in the New York area, so I had like every night. I had Monday night regular, Tuesday night regular, Wednesday night regular, Thursday night regular, Friday night regular in Brooklyn, and then Saturday and Sunday I would keep open. But after 9-11 hit in 2001, it was like all my gigs like just completely went away. My daughter's mom was with me in New York, and she's like, well, I'm going to go back to Indianapolis. I was like, all right. So she went to Indianapolis, and I would go back and forth at the time for the next two years. I was doing just as much work in Indianapolis as I was in New York. Well, maybe I'll just hang out in Indianapolis for a while just to get my bearings. And that was in 2003 when I made the move, and I've been here since. You know, (laughs) It got good. Everything got good to me here, so... What's been great for me is, like, I've been able to still keep that connection. I've played Dizzy's at Lincoln Center a couple times. I've played the Iridium probably about five times since I've been back. And a couple of New York jazz clubs and been able to establish other contacts that I didn't have when I was in New York, like with Mike Clark and with Charlie Hunter and, of course, Dave Stryker, who is in Bloomington, those connections. So I, getting a chance to work with them on a regular basis has been great. Listening to Profiles, our guest today is saxophonist and jazz educator Rob Dixon. After you moved back to Indianapolis, Rob, in 2003, is that around the time that you formed the musical partnership with Melvin Ryan? Uh, Melvin Ryan's a jazz organist who had played with Wes Montgomery in the late 50s and early 60s, and that's probably what he's best known for in the annals of jazz history. But you formed a pretty significant musical partnership with him, didn't you? Oh, yeah. That was probably a few years later. It's probably around 2005, 2006. So I started playing with Melvin on a semi-regular basis, and then we recorded a record in 2007. And then we did like every Wednesday night at the Jazz Kitchen for probably about a year and a half, two years. He's somebody else who had a real strong uh, living connection to a pretty significant part of jazz history, the whole early West Montgomery trip. Yes. I really cherish my time with Melvin because you know, he liked to rehearse and I actually found out that Wes really liked to rehearse because he was a part of that original Wes trio. So I got to hear stories firsthand from him and at the time Killer Ray Appleton because Killer Ray Appleton was in New York, but he would come back sometimes to do and gigs. The drummer like who had been right. part of the Indiana Avenue jazz. Exactly. Scene, right? Yeah. He told me about that whole time when Wes got discovered by Cannonball Adderley, supposedly. Well, when it happened, and it, like the next night they were on a plane to go record on Riverside Records and. We'd have these rehearsals with Keller Ray and, and Melvin, and we never rehearsed. They would just sit there and talk the whole time. We just <laughs> and talk. probably had all kinds of stories to tell, oh, right? yeah. They told me the story once where they rehearsed with Wes. Keller Ray Appleton and Melvin rehearsed with Wes for a year about doing a record out in California. 
And then the two nights before the recording, Wes is like, yeah, I'm not going to take Killer Ray with us. And Killer Ray's like, yeah, he left me here in Indianapolis. He didn't take me. And Melvin's like, really? He's like, we've been working on this music forever. And Wes is like, well, no, no, no. It'll be a, there's a drummer there. It'll be cool. Trust me. And they get there. He's like, and Melvin's like, the drummer was Jimmy Cobb. He's like, yeah, it was cool. <laughs> He's like, Jimmy <laughs> Cobb, who was on Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess if you were going to have your drummer seat taken by somebody, having right. Jimmy Cobb wouldn't be too much of a blow to your ego. No, so... <laughs> I got to hear a lot of great stories about Indiana Avenue from Melvin and just get a really strong connection, his relationship with Wes and the musicians here in Indianapolis. That's amazing to me that you had that partnership with Melvin and Killer Ray Appleton, who are two figures who played such a significant role on Indiana Avenue, which was kind of the main stem of the Indianapolis jazz scene in the 40s and 50s and early 60s. And yet, Today, I have to bring this up, you have earned the moniker of Jazz Mayor of Indianapolis. Oh, right. (laughs) And so you could almost say it sounds like the torch in a way has been passed to you. One, how did you come to earn that nickname or that moniker? And what do you do as the Jazz Mayor of Indianapolis? What are your, what are the duties of that office? That's (laughs) hilarious. Well, you know, it's funny because that name, and it was actually... I like the jazz mayor a lot better, but it originally it was the musical mayor of Indianapolis. Was uh, us like, oh, that has more of a Broadway musical sound. Yeah, to it. So, musical like, mayor. Like you're you're leading a parade. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, my friend Derek Gardner was a great friend of mine. He was out with Harry Connick's band, and he came in to do a gig while he was in between gigs with Harry on the road and we did a gig at the jazz kitchen it was like a big to do and it was all week he had been there he had a little time off so he's following me around and he's like man this guy's doing like i'm working with these hip-hop artists and the blues then i'm doing a thing with the indianapolis chamber orchestra and all these different facets of the indianapolis music scene so when he got on stage he's like man rob's like the musical mayor of indianapolis And then the, like, the next day there was an article in the Indianapolis Star calling me the musical mayor because I think somebody from the uh, Star was there. Maybe it was Jay Harvey. A couple months later, Nouveau did a story and they said, well, musical mayor, you know. <laughs> That's what they titled it. And so it just kind of caught on. It just caught on and then everybody just started saying it. So, And then it kind of um, morphed into jazz mayor, which is, you know. What you prefer. <laughs> if I'm going to be called a mayor or something, you know. Rather, you want to be the jazz mayor. Not the musical mayor, you know what I mean. Indianapolis has this glorious jazz past, all these people that came out. David Baker, who you studied with. Right. Uh, Freddie Hubbard, J.J. Johnson, Slide Hampton, West Montgomery. It's pretty incredible. What's the scene like today and how is it different today than it was during their heyday in the mid-20th century? The music scene is really doing well and I think there's kind of been a resurgence of interest in the music and live music and jazz particularly in Indianapolis and I actually really attribute to schools like IU having such a strong program that's kind of led to I think Ball State having a stronger program and Butler having a strong program so you have all these universities that have some very gifted music students getting out and wanting to play music in the scene and So it's kind of added a lot of great fresh blood to the scene. And these groups have been pretty ambitious, you know. I know Charlie Ballantyne has a group with Amanda Gardier, and 
they've been pretty ambitious in Indianapolis. Uh, Joel Tucker and Nick Tucker have been very ambitious. Of Sean and Bowden has a big band. I think all these young people in the Indianapolis scene are kind of creating a lot of forward motion. So there are a lot of great things happening. And a lot of them do have an IU connection. You're right. Oh, they're all, yeah, students of David in one way or another, you know, if not directly, then indirectly. You're the artistic director for Indie Jazz Fest, yes. uh, which is uh, held every year in the autumn. But I assume that's probably a year-long process of booking the artist and planning and putting that together. In that capacity and as a practicing jazz musician and all the other things you do, how do you kind of balance honoring the Indiana jazz legacy while kind of making people aware that there's a really vital scene happening today? You know, not being too much in the shadow of the J.J. Johnsons and the Freddie Hubbards and all the greats who came before you. Being artistic director for Indie Jazz Fest, you definitely want to celebrate the legacy of Indianapolis jazz scene. I think sometimes the best way to celebrate the legacy is to really invest a lot of things into young artists and young musicians. So we try to always highlight and feature a lot of the musicians that are in Indianapolis. And it's kind of been, I've been on a soapbox about it. When we bring in somebody that, say, has maybe some international name or a national name, I always am a big fan of pairing it with a local group, you know, saying, okay, if this artist is coming to town, then let's have an opener. Or, you know, I have a group that is a, kind of an Indianapolis jazz collective, and I like to bring in national artists. I brought in Randy Brecker, I brought in Bobby Watts, and Stefan Harris to perform with the local musicians, you know. Right, right. I'm a big fan of that. Anat Cohen played last year at Indie Jazz Fest, and I was like, Amanda Gardier just put out a new record. Let's do it as a double bill. And that's not even say opener and close. It's like a double bill. So. Right, Annette Cohen, who's a woman clarinetist, who's right. really developed an international reputation. Exactly. So that I can see how pairing her with Amanda Gardier, who's a younger saxophonist from the Annapolis scene, who's making a name for herself. Exactly. Very appealing. Oh, yeah, definitely, bill. because I want to really showcase the talent that Indianapolis has. Because a lot of people say, wow. They didn't realize it. I think, you know, one of the best things that happened to some of the musicians like Nick Tucker and Kenny Phelps was the fact that the American Pianist Association uses them as a rhythm section. And the judges are people like Dee Dee Bridgewater and Danilo. Billy Childs has been a judge. I mean, they have this world-class jazz musicians, and they get to see Indianapolis musicians on stage with these finalists. And I think... Because of that, that's how Kitty Phelps got the gig with Dee Dee Bridgewater. And he's, now he's in the band and has this great connection with her, you know, because I feel like Indianapolis has a lot of, Indiana, just a lot of talent that is kind of unsung and not recognized nationally. Like other cities, might you might have more of a spotlight on artists. I mean, Nashville... Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, maybe more of a connection to an international national scene. Sometimes I feel like Indianapolis or just cities in Indiana in general don't get that same credit as, you know, Indiana Avenue for producing such great jazz musicians or just musical legends that have influenced the world. I think uh, Wes Montgomery, J.J. Johnson, Freddie Hubbard, I mean, they kind of like... 
shaped the way modern jazz is played today. You know, those are three huge influences, and that's Indiana all the way. Just joining us, our guest today on Profiles is musician and jazz educator Rob Dixon. Rob, I wanted to ask you a little, you, actually something you just said made me think of it too as well. You said initially you were called the musical mayor of Indianapolis because right. you were participating in so many different kinds of musical events, not just jazz. Right. And I wanted to ask you about that, how that factors into your own music because there's a funk influence in right. some of the music that you've recorded. There's, It's not always just straight-ahead jazz. What do you think of the jazz sound today in terms of how it seems to be more of a cross-pollination of a lot of different popular music styles, a lot of different black popular music styles? Right. I think it's really been able to keep jazz, I think, a little bit more relevant. I think that people like Lenny White, and Chick Corea did it in the 70s with Return to Forever. I mean, I think it was the same kind of thing. Like, they wanted to make jazz kind of like keep it relevant, so they kind of blended it with rock and you know other styles of music, and I think that's just more of the same that's happening present day where there's maybe some blend with hip-hop or blues, R&B, maybe a nod back to old soul. You know, my Close to Crossroads... Charlie Hunter was the producer of my record, and I know that he's a big Stax fan. And that kind That's of that a myth, legendary soul yeah, label. Yeah. yeah, that soul and blues. And um, I think he's wanted to definitely have a lot of blues influence and a lot of soul influence. So, And I just think it helps keep jazz relevant. I don't think that it takes the music or bastardizes the music in a way that it's not something that has value. I think it can actually bring people in into the realm of listening to jazz. So you listen to this record that has a lot of different influences, and then you're like, wait a minute, man, you know, this record by Cannonball, this Sunny Stick record sounds great too, you know? I think it happens like that. I don't think it's just like, oh, you have to listen to exactly this because this is jazz and this is not jazz. I don't right. think it, yeah. I don't think that works like that. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of people in the contemporary scene like Robert Glasper. Say, Absolutely. Yeah, who are, are kind of blending these things together and even maybe bringing in certain influences that even just a decade or two ago in the jazz world would have been taboo. You right. know what I mean? I mean, even when you talked about what you were hearing on the radio when you were a kid, people like Grover Washington Jr., David right. Sanford, Spira Gyra, for a long time, groups like that and artists like that, I think— have been looked down upon by exactly. a lot of people in the jazz community until people like Robert Glasper came along and kind of started saying, well, this is part of the popular music tradition of the last 30 or 40 years, and why right. not use some of these elements in what we're doing now? Yes, exactly. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, because I think what has really been able to take off, and I think because maybe credit to David Baker and some other educators, is that jazz education has seemed to really 
take off on a collegiate level. And I think you said that in an interview that it is very strong across the nation. What I actually experienced in New York is the more technical aspects of the music became kind of like the more paramount, you know, where it's almost like the education influenced the music so much that the music on the street was about the things in academia that would like, you know, you have artists like Mark Turner and to say that it's all about technique and most of his stuff is you could almost say is classical or comes from a classical place. And when I was in New York, that was kind of the street music of the time. It's like people studying flute etudes on saxophone and violin concertos. That was the thing to do, you know, to really move the music forward. But it's kind of good because it's almost like boiling water just bubbled over because then it seeps back down and it's like, okay, then people get back into like playing the blues and the more emotive aspects, emotional aspects of the music that people can relate to, that like people that are not musicians, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, you also, I wanted to ask you, you were talking about Coast to Crossroads, your album that you did with Charlie Hunter. And on that album, you do a song that was co-written and recorded by Tupac Shakur, oh, right. California Love, which I've played on the radio here a number of times, as well as other tracks off that album. I wanted to ask you, where does hip-hop, where does rap factor into the jazz story, into the jazz process of evolution? You know, hip-hop is music that was started in probably, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s in New York City. And I think it it comes from African-Americans that were in the projects. And I think there's a similarity because jazz comes from the African-American community, but it happened like early on, like in the uh, first part of the 20th century. And this is I think it was just a new music, and it was completely, like, improvised. They're both improvised music, you know I mean? Like, one is using an instrument, the other was a voice and a turntable. That's actually how indie hip-hop evolved, because people in projects didn't have musical instruments, you know what I mean? They didn't have a guitar or a bass or maybe somebody's old turntable and a voice. And I think that, that was the inception of that music. And there's a lot of similarities. And I think that the fact that Glassburg combines hip-hop and jazz, I think it it just melds well together because it's all based on this improvisation, I think, is the center of the music. You also mentioned that hip-hop, like jazz, kind of originated, came out of African-American communities and in both instances ended up being performed by white artists as well. Do you ever feel like there's an issue there of cultural appropriation? I mean, is there a kind of a complex area of jazz and race that has to be navigated sometimes? Well, I don't know. I think that subject matter is a very complex narrative. <laughs> but I've always contended that jazz came from African-American community but now it's celebrated around the world. So it's not like it has to be from this area to be played well because it's become the language of an international language, you know, which is a beautiful thing. And I think that happens when an art form is great, you know, like Mozart, you know, there are people in Japan and then there are people in New York and Portland, Oregon that can play Mozart like they were from Salzburg, you know, but they're not from <laughs> Salzburg, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so I think it's just the same thing, you know, and I think that goes with hip hop. If you really 
you don't have to be from Brooklyn, New York to be a true hip hop artist. You know, you can be from Kansas City and be a great hip hop artist, or you can be Belgium, Antwerp, Belgium, and be a good hip hop artist. I think that's the power of music, even though it might come from certain culture existed in a certain place in the world, I think that that can transfer through music, particularly if a person is willing to really study and embrace where the music comes from and what culture it came from, you know. I think that gives an artist a great perspective on how to interpret the music. Listening to Profiles, our guest is saxophonist and jazz educator Rob Dixon. Something you just said, Rob, how should jazz history be taught going forward? You're a jazz educator. You're a practicing jazz musician. How do you think it should be taught going forward the next 10, 20, 30 years to kind of keep the music vital and also to keep younger musicians' knowledge of the past happening in a way that's relevant to making good music today? I'm with the belief that the guest artists, particularly seasoned guest artists to universities, is something that should be paramount in jazz education because what you want to do is try to bridge the gap between like you just be in the classroom and then somebody that's actually performed or you know one of the greatest experiences for my one of my classes at IUPUI, I got a chance to bring Bobby Watson in and have him talk about his performance. He's a saxophonist who played with Art Blakey right, know, right in the 1980s in jazz messengers. And, you know, he was just a wealth of knowledge and not only talked about the music, you know, from first hand, because he had been with all these greats and worked with a lot of great musicians, but he gave insight into the way he felt and what the music did for him. And I think that when you bring that to an institution or to younger people when you're trying to teach, it's like, okay, not only do I want to show you the technical aspects, I want to show you other aspects that are important, intrinsically important to making this music, you know, that have this great value, like the way it made me feel or what was happening in my life, what brought me to this music, why I really like to play the blues, how I learned to play the blues. Or, you know what I mean? Those kind of things. Having a lot of uh, personal stories from seasoned jazz musicians coming into educational, I think that helps. And it helps, uh, it really helped me, you know, David Baker, not only being like the great educator he was, he was a seasoned professional jazz musician. So he could speak to you in just purely academic terms, but he would always pepper it with some anecdote of him being a professional musician. And that made it really get across the plate to a lot of students. 
how do you as a jazz educator, how do you kind of help a musician find his or her own sound? You know, that's something that you always hear people talking about with jazz musicians, like that's the ultimate goal is to come up with your own sound. But but what can you do to help somebody do that beyond giving them a lot of technical help and a lot of direction? Are there other ways of helping that come about? You know, I always tell my students if they want to develop a good sound to mimic their favorite players. You know, and David told me, he was like, play like Train, play like Joe Henderson, play like Sonny Rollins, Gene Ammons, play like Eleanor Jaquetta, because ultimately you're going to sound like you. You're not going to sound exactly like them unless unless you just make a concerted effort. And there's some musicians that have just made their business to sound like a particular person. But if you just transcribe and, you know, Miles Davis, I heard, said, you need to find your voice through other people's voices. That's how you find your voice in jazz. And I subscribe to that theory, that you need to listen and mimic and try to sound like this guy. It'll evolve. I mean, I've taken, like, lines from Sonny Rollins and Hank Mobley and Coltrane, and initially it might I might sound like I'm playing Hank Mobley, but then little things happen in the line, little things happen in my inflections, little things happen, where, like, years later I'm playing that same line, and it's me. It's not him anymore. It's like, you know, I just took his idea and expounded on it. So I, I really think that to find your own voice, you really need to find it through the voices of the jazz masters. How would you describe the Rob Dixon sound? I don't know. I'm not really a big fan of myself. <laughs> yeah, I try real hard <laughs> to play uh, the music. I really like writing music, writing compositions. So mm-hmm. I really try to write music. I feel like it's fun to play on. So I really couldn't tell you what my... I've been told I have a great silvery tone on saxophone. And I, I'm happy for that because I know for a long time I didn't have a good saxophone sound. So I've worked on getting just a a good sound, and I wanted to play good melodies. What would you like to do uh, musically and artistically speaking that you haven't done yet? You know, I don't know. I uh, I would definitely like to record some more music. You know, I, I'm always constantly wanting to record. It would be nice to record with an orchestra. I actually got to be featured with the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra and play a solo piece that was written. It was... It wasn't written for me specifically, but it was, I got to improvise with the orchestra in, in the background, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I said, man, how cool it would actually to incorporate an orchestra with maybe that kind of fusion with the hip-hop or R&B or some Stax recordings, you know what I mean? I mean, it's kind of been done, sort of, like Ray Charles has the orchestra. You know, people record with strings and back in the day. To do it present day, to have an orchestra, it doesn't have to be a huge orchestra, but a full string section with my band would be awesome. So I think that would be something I would like to record with. You have a wife and you have a daughter, and you have a very, very busy life, it sounds like, as a professional working musician and jazz educator, does, how do you kind of keep that all balanced and juggled? I mean, musicians kind of work right. non-family-friendly hours to begin with. You know, a lot of gigs are in the evening and everything. How does uh, how does that all kind of work for you? It doesn't a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I go on low sleep, you know. I'll get home from a gig at 3, 2.30 in the morning, and then 
I have to take my daughter to school. She has to be there at 7 a.m. So I'm like up at 6.30 driving to get, you know, coffee, like driving and getting in. It keeps me busy, constantly juggling, you know. It's a process of juggling. But I'm thankful to be busy and to have a lot of activity in my life because it keeps things interesting, you know. I'm doing gigs. I'm going on the road. And then having my daughter involved, I get to do, you know, go to her performances. She's a thespian and she acts. She also dances. So it's exciting to be a part of that, too. If your daughter came up to you and said to you, I want to be a jazz musician when I grow up, what would you tell her? I don't know. I would kind of laugh. I don't think she wants to be a jazz musician at all. But I would want to encourage her to be whatever she wants to be um, within reason. My parents were very encouraging of me to go into music, and they they knew that that wasn't like a safe route. So, you know, it's funny. My daughter played the clarinet for a while and in school, and then her band director would, every time I see him, she's like, she's doing great, she's doing great. And then, like, she'd come to me in the morning sometimes and be like, Show me this note. How do you play an E flat? Or how do you play a C? Or, I was like, when's the concert? She's like, tonight. It's <laughs> <was> like, what? <laughs> she was like, yeah, show me these notes. And the band director was like, she's doing great. I'm like, she never practices. She's just horrible. And then he goes, yeah, I know. I just didn't want to say. I was like, well, why would you try to tell me? I was like, of course I know she can't play. She never practices. But she's a great actress, so much so that I think she wants to move to L.A., like, yesterday, you know. And I'm like, what about all your friends? She's like, I'll get new ones. It's cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so the artistic tradition that oh, you yeah. started, that Rob Dixon has started and may now be continuing with your daughter. Maybe. Like. She wants to be a big Hollywood star. I said, look, you don't want to go there too soon because, you know, kid stars, like, they fizzle out quick. So, you know, you want to hit it just the right time. So I'm not ready to pay for an apartment in L.A. just yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been speaking today with musician and jazz educator Rob Dixon. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. This is David Brent Johnson for Profiles. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.